Chapter 5 It was a place undisturbed by humans, immense yet undetected, overrun by the thickest jutting pines blocking the light and a carpet of brown needles that muffled the sound. It was a place teeming with small mammals and insects and their scuttering noises and a few bigger animals, wild boar, foxes, a pack of nervy deer, some rubbing their antlers against tree bark, all ready to bolt. I wondered if any bears would be coming out of their caves at night, or if I would be able to hear them pant as they foraged for nuts. I estimated I'd been walking for five hours, and there was still no sign the forest was easing. It wasn't far looking down before details became indistinguishable in the range of trees. Looking up, it was brighter and I could see further, but it was still too dense to tell how far I had to climb. Constant tricks of light, as well as the clearing earlier, had fooled me into thinking I might be close to my objective. I felt despair pushing at the edges of my defense. It's all very well fostering hope, keeping your chin up, as the English like to say, but there were practical matters to consider, as well as the overwhelming mystery of why I should be in this situation, dressed in a fine suit. I was almost prepared to believe I'd been transported to prehistoric times. That was my wildest speculation as I roamed through the forest. I hung my jacket from a branch to let it air, and thought about taking my shirt and tie off. I'd already loosened my tie. It was a green, silky one, elegantly thin, with a pattern of small yellow diamonds. I thought it might come in handy as a substitute for a rope. Despite the risk of exposing myself to further bites, I decided to unbutton my shirt to let the breeze flow around my body. As I rested on the stump of a tree, I reviewed my circumstances. I couldn't bring myself to go back the way I'd come, so I didn't even consider it. I had no idea where I was, or how I got to be there. What troubled me most was how selective and unyielding my memory was. I'd been grappling with this all morning, sensing I must be suffering from shock. I had no idea how I'd come to wake up in this place. That alone was threatening enough, but much worse. I didn't know my name, or where I'd come from, or what I did in life. Why all the muscle pain and the constant ache in my right arm? I guessed I must be reasonably healthy, not too old. There were all kinds of flashing memories, images of people and locations, shifting sands, all of them. As soon as I concentrated on anything that might have been historically significant, it became shapeless. The best clue at my disposal was my own vocabulary and the way I used language. It was a meticulous use of language, taking in details and ordering them to my favor, as if I might possess a heightened inclination to solve problems. Within a few minutes, my heart rate and breathing leveled off, no longer impairing my senses, and a new sound made itself known to me. It was the gurgle of running water. A cool, moist breeze gave me the distinct impression it was close by, maybe a few hundred meters to my right. This lifted such a weight off my mind I had to smile. 
There was something else, too. The cut was very clean over the stump I was sitting on. Not fresh by any means, but smooth with a burnt finish, as if it had been chainsawed by a woodsman. I was glad of that and kept smiling. There was no sign of the rest of the tree either. It must have been hauled away. I reasoned that if trees in the forest were being felled in this fashion, there should be roads soon enough, or at least tracks leading out. I stood sick with hunger, but convinced I would soon be able to quench my thirst. It became my overriding objective. I no longer had to get out of the forest first. I only had to find the stream I could already hear and resolved not to let the heat or the insects get in my way a second time. It occurred to me that people who live in hot countries seem oblivious to insects landing on their eyelids or their lips. They couldn't care less. And what's more, they never seem bothered by the sun's heat. They're good at tackling the problems of heat because they're used to it. I felt I would have to achieve a similar kind of bearing or be doomed to a lot of unnecessary aggravation and energy waste. I retrieved my jacket and noticed the black label inside had Kruger written on it in italics. It was a brand name. It meant nothing to me. Just a name I gathered wasn't mine. It's upsetting not to know your own name. I squeezed my eyelids together and said aloud, Come on, you know who you are. But the truth was I didn't. The only answers I had came from the vastness of the forest I was in. I could feel how big it was. It was something to do with the stillness every time I listened. I felt I shouldn't dwell on this, though. All I had to do was be calm and methodical, take everything one step at a time. Either that or crack up. I slipped my jacket over my shoulders, city-style, and, facing the breeze, I moved on. It was tricky keeping upright as I traipsed across steeper slopes. Despite the heat, I had to put my jacket back on to free both hands. I used them to restore my balance against the trees, causing more rips and holes with every few meters gained, catching myself again and again on brambles and branches. As I stooped every so often, trying to lower my center of gravity, the ridiculous green tie dangled from my neck. Chapter 6 When Jamie was little, he could make his parents laugh by telling them he wanted to be a policeman because policemen never got yelled at. That was long ago, when he used to hold his father's hand and be fascinated by his father's pipes a collection of pipes in the living room that these days nobody was allowed to even look at, let alone play with. Jamie didn't really mind new and evolving rules, so long as everyone played by them. We all have our own private space, he mumbled as he stomped up the road, and nobody is allowed to enter it or mess with anything in it, except for Anya. The thought of his sister made him cringe. He was so dismayed at the unfairness of what had just happened it made him stomp faster, the injustice of it. Anya could enter his space and do her worst, but when it came to the crunch, it was Jamie Heller who got yelled at. Bollocks, he said out loud as he turned into a gravel path by the pond, making dust explosions with each step before heading full pelt into the woods. 
Jamie decided he would run until he couldn't breathe anymore or until his heart blew up. It was the only gesture of defiance left against a growing awareness that he wasn't prepared to take it further than that. He ran down the trampled dips and bends, through narrow gaps between branches and brambles, along the forking wooded paths, knowing that the incident didn't quite merit leaving home for all time. It was serious as far as incidents go, but Jamie realized it would have to be much worse for him to pack his toothbrush and take the world on. Already he was moderating his stride, in case others out walking their dogs wondered why he should appear so flustered, panting and ranting, alone in the heathland woods. He still had his school tie on, the tails of his shirt draped out over his trousers. At least he'd had the foresight to put a pair of trainers on, instead of running out in his scuffed school shoes. He jogged into a long, sloping clearing, where three older boys were playing with a frisbee. When they turned to look, he made himself walk casually away from them, taking deep breaths until he was back under the trees. What you do, he thought, is you stretch this thing into staying away from dinner on purpose. There and then, Jamie decided to give his parents the feeling he might never come back, then show up after dark, go to his room, and await reprisals. He knew it would scare his mother, and hopefully she would flip again. This plan formed despite the fact that it pained him to see his mother so mixed up. Jamie would never have believed just a few months before that she could have behaved in that way. It's what made him decide that avoiding dinner on purpose would be the most balanced reaction. There was a twisted oak he knew well. It had the mold of a throne at the base he could lean his back into and wait in. It was on a track part of the way up a steep bank about twenty minutes from home. He made his way to it and slumped into position, curling his knees into his chest to keep warm. Generations of walkers had trampled the path either side of this oak so that its roots were exposed, trailing like tentacles out to the bushes. Some of the roots were so worn they looked polished. Jamie gazed at the snaky smoothness of one slipping in and out of the ground. He was comforted by the sound of leaves rustling above, the scattered light all around, and the fact that nobody could see him. He sniggered about shouting, Fuck that! In this quiet moment in his storm, he knew he probably shouldn't have. Recalling it made his cheeks flush. He hadn't intended to be so blatant, but Anya always pushed him to the limit, and he wasn't used to his mother getting furious. Everyone seems to be getting furious, he thought, like a fire catching in each of us. The other thing that was catching was the idea that there might be something wrong with his father. This had never before been remotely possible. Jamie was thinking about the remarks his father sometimes made out of the blue, and a cajoling, pressured way of talking whenever he was trying to be funny. All his father's quirkier traits had, at one time, given Jamie's life color. It was something he could joke about and was perfectly agreeable. Friends who came to visit or stay the night thought that was how older Americans behaved. But these days, Jamie could hear his parents having what he thought were serious arguments, usually every week. There were other incidents, too, when his father threw a coffee cup out into the garden for no reason. And another time when his father went around with a bin bag, chucking everything into the bin bag, toys and things Jamie and his sister might have left outside their rooms by accident, putting on a voice as he went around tidying everything up. It was a new voice Jamie didn't like at all. 
insisting that everything had its rightful place. It wasn't the words, it was more his father's tone that was so scary, snapping and throaty, as if there was something grisly inside him, trying to get out. Robert and Angela Heller had arrived just after seven, only to learn that Barry had gone to look for Jamie. They were told that Jamie was still playing on the heath. Dinner was nearly ready. Annie was upstairs getting changed. She'll be along soon, Teresa said to her brother-in-law and his wife, gracious and herself again, offering the guests martinis. Understandably, Teresa didn't want to go into what had really happened. She could only hope that Barry would find Jamie and bring him home peacefully, and they could all sit down to dinner and have a pleasant family reunion. She didn't like the way Barry had looked at her when she explained what the row had really been about. It was a menacing look, as if this was her fault. Nor did she like the way he'd stormed out of the house, kicking his briefcase over before she could say anything else. Once he was out in the park, Barry went more slowly through the twilight. He took extra long strides where he thought his shoes might get scuffed or soiled, and was forced to hoist his suit pants up as he traipsed through patches of high, clumpy grass. He had his pipe ready to light and stopped on a mound to attend to it. The evening silence impressed him. He stood on the mound for a moment, gathering the silence to him. There was nothing, nobody else, not even the trills of a blackbird to disturb him. Just the faintest breeze in a deepening blue sky, with clouds streaked in oranges and pinks. He found it a pleasure to light his pipe and walk on. The moon was small and high. Barry wondered if he should shout for Jamie before the night fell and the whole thing got out of hand. He walked another ten minutes, smoking and peering into the darker recesses where the trees were more densely packed. There were others in the park. You can never be entirely on your own, he thought. Occasionally, when they approached, he would stop and let them pass. He didn't like the look of one man he came across, with greasy, unkempt hair and a gold chain around his neck. He tried to commit the man's looks to memory. It was part of an encroaching, ugly fantasy, being a potential witness, having to tell the police what the man looked like. In the end, Barry did shout. He had to. He tried to make it sound as if he wasn't concerned. He and his son had momentarily been separated, and now Barry was calling for Jamie because it was time to go home. Come on out, he kept saying. That's enough horseplay. Jamie heard him. By pure chance, Barry had strayed close to the oak throne Jamie was sitting in, shivering by then. He got to his feet and was presented with one of two possibilities. Either go out there and face the unknown of his father's moods, or run back home where he felt sure his mother would protect him from anything sudden or manic. He didn't waste any time. He was already looking right and left, trying to work out which way to go. He could hear his father's approaching voice. It was exactly the kind of voice he would have preferred to get away from. By the time he decided to sneak up the slope, it was too late. Jamie, is that you? The words struck like a blow and Jamie turned. His father was making fast progress towards him. The sweet smell of his tobacco was already present as a first waft. The only thing for it, Jamie thought, is to keep quiet. Don't say a word and get home in one piece. Barry struggled up to his son, shaking his head. He was taking short puffs on his pipe and exhaling hard. 
the corners of his mouth turned into a smile with smoke coming out of it. He put his hand on Jamie's shoulder, slightly sweaty from his exertions. Hey, where have you been, champ? He seemed friendlier than Jamie imagined he would be. Not knowing how to answer, Jamie just shook his head. They made their way down the slope together. All the while, Barry kept his hand on Jamie's shoulder until it began to feel heavy and Jamie tried shrugging it off. You know, there are still people who don't know the war they were fighting ended a long time ago, Barry said. Jamie tried looking at him as they walked. They still think they're fighting, Barry said. They might be under orders to protect a pass or hold a hill somewhere deep in some jungle. Nobody's told them that everybody else is kissed and made up. Jamie didn't respond. He didn't know how to. It's true, though, his father insisted. The path they were on had a good view of the sky. The first stars had come out. Barry kept talking about people forgetting the war is over. Guys living in the trees, he was saying, eating whatever they can find or steal, their guns rusting, but they go on patrolling, sometimes even killing. You read about it all the time. Jamie wondered if he shouldn't panic. Look, Dad, I'm sorry. His father patted his shoulder. Hey, look at the moon, he said, pointing at it with his pipe. They looked up at the faint patches that were the seas, now visible on the quarter moon. I'd love to hide up there, Barry said. Wouldn't you? 